Welcome, welcome again to another rendition of WTF Interviews. My name is Sir Royce Pialis, one of my prestigious co-host, Dr. Ryan Young. How's it going, brother? Noah well, man. How things are you in? Ah, man, pretty good, man. The Bulls almost in first place, man. I'm excited for this season, man. They're kicking, they're kicking butts for the first time in a while, bro. <laughs> See red. But uh, <laughs> I'm also pleased to announce we have a special guest, James Holly Jr. How's it going, brother? I'm good. Appreciate you saying the junior. I'm glad yeah, to be I gotta here. say that, man. That's the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, first question for you, James. Uh, uh, what do you do for a purpose or for a living? And uh, how many kids you got, and what are their ages? So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan in the mechanical engineering department. Uh, so that means I do research on, I, mean, I guess to put it simply, my research looks at how black intellectualism can help people rethink what engineering is, what mechanical engineering is and how to use it and how to serve people um, by affirming black values, black identity, black intellectualism. Um, and then I teach courses, mentor students and things like that. Uh, I have two daughters. Uh, one is age two, she'll be three in January. And then the other is uh, four and she'll be five in December. So a month from now. All right, cool, cool. So what, what made you get into um, into like in engineering? Like, why'd you go get onto that field? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not one that I was one of the types of like, oh, when I was younger, I took a, I take a stuff apart and put it back together, you know, taking apart the lawnmower and then like that. Um, really, I participated in a program called DAPSEP, Detroit Area Pre-College Engineering Program. My mom wanted me to be engaged in different educational experiences. And between that program and then just like in math and science at school, was encouraged to explore engineering. Generally, if you like math and science, that's kind of a typical way route to go people suggest you look into engineering and so when I was going to college I know I wanted to go to a black college and um, I just looked up what schools were known for engineering or had a reputable program in engineering uh, ended up going to Tuskegee University and so um, when I was studying it there the curriculum the classes were interesting to me they were stimu mentally stimulating but I didn't necessarily feel as if I was passionate or about engineering as if I saw it as a career trajectory. And so um, I had a faculty member who saw a lot of promise in me, encouraged me to get a PhD. And so that would make me explore graduate school. And um, so that's really how I stayed in because at that point I was like, I made it through engineering. I graduated with that degree. And I was interested in youth development, particularly urban youth, like in the city of Detroit. And engineering typically is not it, it doesn't, uh, how should I say, it doesn't serve the needs of Black people in urban spaces, right? right? So how engineers conceived tends to be exclusive. It tends to suggest that we have something intellectually deficient about us and how people teach it and how people treat us within engineering. And also the purposes of engineering, you know, even though engineering was caused to disrupt our communities and enact racism, is not used to correct those issues. And so I saw the opportunity to reframe engineering, reconceptualize how engineering can be useful. And that's really why I serve in the role that I do. Oh, that's cool. Can you talk about like, um, earlier you spoke on like um, uh, black intellectualism. Can you uh, talk about how black intellectualism contributed to America? 
Yeah, so, you know, I think when I say black intellectuals and folks I think about are like W.E.B. W-E-B du Bois, um, Cornell West, my contemporary mm-hmm. folks, Amiri Baraka, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, um, James Baldwin. Um, I'll even throw in some folks that we may not think as uh, black thinkers, more so as activists, but they still are like uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., yeah. Uh, Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Torre, you know, formerly known as Stokely, like all of these, there's so many black folks who articulated that the promises of America are false. The, the ideals of America are mythic, but in particular, they affirm the ways that black people um, have navigated society and created alternative ways of living despite this mm-hmm. oppressive social structure. And so you know, some of the ways like W.E.B. Du Bois talks about double consciousness. Um, and he says there's this dueling consciousness, like mental state that we have where we know that we black and to be black is to not really be American. Right? And I think yeah. nowadays people may find it hard to understand because you think like I'm, I was born here, I was raised here, I'm an American. Like I have my citizenship, my nationality is American, but what he's talking about is when they were creating this country and how they think about who, who's value, who has dignity. Typically people are designing and thinking and making decisions for white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he talks about like no, being aware of this fact that like your dignity is always undermined as a black person. Your humanity, you, these institutions, political institutions, economic institutions, um, dehumanize you. They make life difficult and survival. You focus more so on surviving than being well. And so that framework is helpful so that we don't, in terms of how it shaped America, I think it brings a, a, a consciousness in terms of like, maybe not consciousness is the right word, but just it's a measuring stick of like, is America true to what it claims to be? Yeah. Um, the, this idea of freedom, idea of liberty, these are ideals that they like to espouse, but black intellectuals show that those things are not only fake, but they're also like the opposite is reality, <laughs> the antithesis mm-hmm. of what our reality truly is. And so I, um, but that's a harsh reality. And so a lot of times people don't want to really deal with that, reckon with it. And so I use them to help inform how I encourage students to think about our existence. That's cool. I think it is. Actually, I got one more. My bad. Uh, Mary Baraka. My bad. And Gil Scott Heron is another. But um, Gil Scott Heron has a song called. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You got it. Y'all familiar with the song Whitey on the Moon? Yeah. Right. So I think of him. I think of Mary Baraka. Mary Baraka talk, has this uh, one quote. He's talking about um, like technology um, absorbs or manifests the spirit of the creator or the perspective of the creator. So a lot of times people say, well, technology is unbiased or things like that. And so he talks about how what we create is emblematic of who we are. Like it reproduces who we are as the creators. Mm-hmm. And I talk about those two in terms of why you're on the moon because we look at mm-hmm. scenarios where, you know, Jeff Bezos, Bezos, and, you know, taking folks on field trips to the moon while you got in Ben Harbor, Michigan, you got a water crisis in Flint, mm-hmm. uh, Michigan, you got a water crisis and Detroit, you got all type of crises in various areas. So all these black cities, people are struggling to live, and yet you have folks who are looking to live somewhere else in a different aspect of the universe. And so black folks 
again, expose those inconsistencies and disparities between um, how our humanity is not viewed is valid. That's very true. Yeah, so speak uh, on um, your thoughts on uh, raising uh, children in this type of uh, world. Like, uh, how, how, has you, how, how have you used your experience with uh, engineering with education uh, at home with your kids? Yeah, so one is like, uh, I have behind me various books um, that affirm Black identity and Black intellectualism. Um, one of my favorites is this one to my over my right shoulder, uh, The Undefeated. And it's a poem uh, by Kwame Alexander that really walks through Black history from chattel slavery and how we, our ancestors were kidnapped and brought over here. But then he talks about the ways that we've excelled and still made various accomplishments. And it's not, you know, he talks about athletes, he talks about writers and thinkers he talks about you know musicians and that to me not to me but the one of the ways that i've tried to use this for my girls is to to it's this constant tension right like i don't want to discourage them where they feel like oh man it's nothing i can do like america have been lying to me you know black folks still in this bad spot there, there's nothing like why i don't want them to fall into nihilism um but I also don't want them to only focus on the positive aspects of who they are and, and what has built them as Black folks and the riches of our culture and identity and not reckon with this, this rough reality that we're still in this. Right? Like all these people did these great things. You have all these great thinkers and contributors. But yet, even in 2021, we still have tremendous disparities in terms of um, housing, wellness, mental wellness, psychological wellness, um, you know, wealth stratification. So I, I try to go back and forth. I don't say if I balance it, but I try to go back and forth between elevating the beauty of their identity, how they look and you know who they are and the contribution to them and then also spirituality. Um, and while also talking about some of the, the harsh realities that we had to navigate. So one is books. Um, the other is verbally uh, affirming them. You know, uh, they, they're like, currently they're four and two, but I talk to them like, you are black, you know, you're black and beautiful. That person is white, that person is brown, whatever, too. Help them also be aware that even though race is not biological, it has tangible influences on our lived reality. Um, so helping them to build a consciousness to that early on. So again, they're not caught off guard and rather they can counteract those things more directly. Um, and then the other part is praying. Honestly, because um, there's a lot of fear with having two black girls knowing how black women are devalued even to a worse thing than black men in, in society, right? Like black women are uh, heavily objectified and their bodies are commodified. And so, you know, people feel that they can do whatever they want to black girls. And so, you know, there's a, my prayer, my fears cause me to pray often um, on their behalf that, um, they won't have to na navigate some of the atrocities that many Black women have. Do you find it hard, like, um, working in higher education uh, while navigating that space and also maintaining, like, um, your identity? Yes, 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 yes. 
my identity and my roles and responsibilities as a father to, mm. to frame it in the context of this conversation. Um, so I said I'm assistant professor. And what that means is I'm classified as being on what's called the tenure track. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with tenure, but it's the idea mm. that after working the job about five or six years, maybe seven years, you put together a portfolio of all what you've done, the teaching, the research you've done, grants that you've won, and then there's a committee that will evaluate whether or not you deserve to be promoted. Um, and if you get promoted, it's job security, meaning you, it's hard to fire you, essentially. <laughs> uh, you can speak the way you want to speak, you know, you can do really even some very improper things, almost except anything, but I mean, you can do pretty much anything but kill somebody, basically. Once you get tenure, it's, it's a very secure classification. Um, but what it means is for those five or six years, you have to be deeply dedicated to spending so the majority of your time writing journals so that they can be published, um, writing grants so that you can bring in uh, money for the institution, um, engaging in various service capacities or whatever. So what that means is I'm constantly juggling these things and like you say, for one, it, me, so I'm a black man, is uh, very few, relatively speaking, the number of black men with PhDs in engineering is very small but even more so the number of black faculty in engineering programs um, is, is very small. So, yeah. uh, but also I do race scholarship. So I'm not only black, but I focus on race and racism and anti-blackness in particular. So how people view me and my intellectual capabilities um, is often uh, from a deficit standpoint, like I, I don't deserve to be there, I'm not smart enough, or I'm talking about this soft stuff that's not really related to the core aspects of engineering. So I'm always dealing with those social pressures and uh, this type of, con I mean, various conversations and expectations. But then as it relates to my girls, is a lot of times trying to navigate the when can I work? You know, do I have, you know, trying to make so I can retain mental space to interact with them, play with them, and just stay attuned to their growth and development. And so it's very hard because the, the job is stressful, but it also takes up a lot of time. Um, so if I'm not willing to get up early in the morning or stay up late, then I, I take away time during the day from interacting with my, my daughters and my wife, you know, just as a father, but as a husband. And so, um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's very hard. It's very, very hard. I, I, my oldest, who's five, I tell a lot of people, I'm like, I didn't feel like I was really ready to be a parent until two years ago. <laughs> the first three years, I was just... <laughs> Dragging along, uh, God's grace to help whatever she turned out to be. It was her mama and, and the Lord. Like I was like, well, I was struggling, like just navigating the existential reality of like I'm responsible for this human being, like this little being. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I just felt ready. Like two years. So the second child, she got a lot more. She got a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I was able to give her more. But yeah, it's extremely hard. That's interesting. It took you three years to essentially get yeah. your sea legs. Yeah, yeah. It took me about a year. I was like a year into it, man, after the first one. And uh, yeah, yeah, and the second right. one, you're right, man, it's different. Like uh, you, you get, um, you know what to do already. Like you, you prepare a lot more for what to expect. Well, some, some way, like, like I was prepared in a sense, like mentally, like I know there are going to be some things I had to do. I know I had to give up some things. I know I have to, spend energy and be patient 
Like I know I have to better control my emotions and my mental state. So the three years wasn't necessarily that, uh, but what I mean by that is not that I wasn't managing my duties, but it was just like my decision-making mechanisms, like am I prioritizing my wife and daughter or am I prioritizing the job? Am I prioritizing me? And it took me a while to rework that. I was trying to make them all work. It's yeah. like you, it, you can't, like they, they're not equal. And it took me a while to kind of move myself to the back, de-emphasize the job and to say like, you know, this is, she needs me to be present in these ways. Yeah. You know? I think I compare it to uh, juggling. Like the more you yeah. juggle, the better you get at it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was dropping the ball all over. <laughs> <laughs> so what what went through your mind when you found out you were having a second baby? So you got the first one and then boom, she pregnant again. What happened? Uh what went through your mind when she told you that she was pregnant again? Well, I, it was a little like, wow, you know, we again I'm still figuring out how to do the one. So we gonna do <laughs> and that's gonna take more energy. But on the flip side, it was um what I thought was cool is that they were be close in age. Yeah. So on one side, I'm like, for, for me, I was nervous and anxious about like, you know, do we have financial capacity to deal with too? Do we have the time availability? Will we be physically present emotionally and things like that? For each of them, I was excited that they will have each other um, because I have an older sister who's seven years older. So we grew up together for a significant part, but then she was at the house when I was coming to be aware of things. And then my younger sister, she's 12 years younger. We didn't grow up together. So those, it was kind of like those dual perspectives I had. Like one, okay, we, that means we got to get a, another car seat. We got to get a bigger stroller. <laughs> More diapers, we're going to have to change. All right, who's going to pay for that? <laughs> but then the other side, it was like, Man, at least they're going, you know, they're close in age and they'll be going through some of the stages of life at the same time. Can you can you talk about your relationship with your father? Yeah, so my dad, uh, he and my mother never married. They were dating. I think they were still together after I was born maybe a year or so. Um, then they split. And then when I was growing up, I really... I often say I mainly was raised by my mom um, because that's who's in the house I was with. With my dad, I spent time uh, going over his house here and there, but um, not like consistently or anything like that. And so I think for most of my life, now when I say most, I mean through like early 20s. It was, I mean, neither one of them really talked about their relationship. So I didn't really know what happened, where things went, but I was reflecting on like, it's easier not to think about it than to actually think about it. That's what I felt for most of my life. Like just to, I'm with my mom, I grew up with my mom. That's how we, that, that's what I know. Like my dad, we hung out every now and again. He'd drop some lessons. He'd show me around. Like he uh, he worked in, in the school system. So he, I'd go to school with him here and there. Um, but mostly a lot of times gave credit to my mom in terms of forming me as who I am. My mom and other male influencers through a church community that I grew up in and things like that. 
when I became older, mid twenties, and like one thing, you know, and I began to assert myself and like my own interactions with my dad. One thing I realized, like he still didn't necessarily recognize. I didn't feel he recognized my adulthood, my own mm-hmm. manhood. Right, so he mm-hmm. it was just like the son, but it was kind of like I'm still. I get to tell you what to do. I get to tell you, you know, and so that's one thing I didn't appreciate. Um, so that was a rough patch, like mid to late twenties. Then at some point, I was just like, you know, it's from a spiritual standpoint. I'm like, it's it is more beneficial for me him and my family I'm developing to I want to say like like just forgive but like think about honoring him as like I mean I'm literally a part of him I mean I'm a junior right like that like that I have his name have so many aspects of him and who I am and how I operate like we both got the gift of gap gift of gap we can talk like a mug you know he played basketball I played basketball but moving from what issues are core issues and big issues and what issues is just like annoyances and things that happen that I can kind of deal with get over so I don't know if it's necessarily like fully reckoned with my childhood and growing up with my dad and how he wasn't there and what things I felt like I'm lacking as a result of that mm-hmm. but I've kind of shifted in thinking about as an adult how can I move forward and then thinking about the role my dad can play and, and vice versa, right? Like helping him think about his own reality based on the man I've come to be. Um, so I feel like I've just like I always tried to serve myself more, but I definitely do think often about aspects that I feel like was lacking or absent in my maturation due mm-hmm. to my relationship with my father. Okay. You think your relationship has a uh mature as you become a, an adult like with your dad well one is just to speak of my mind so I think <laughs> like you know my dad he uh, when I was, went off to college and started studying things from an academic perspective so it's one thing to be black right and know our experience and when we talk anecdotally when I say anecdote like I got a story you got a story and like man I remember this or this happened and it's another thing to see, okay, what has research and scholars and black intellectuals said about being black in America? And I think that what I've learned from those things, just even the people outside the academy, just folks who've written books and folks who contributed thought, the ideas I have, oftentimes I see that they are in contrast with his ideas. And I think in many black homes, you know, to honor means not to say nothing because they're the older person they're supposed to be wiser and you just okay but for me I'm like I'll honor this by giving you the floor to speak and then I'm gonna speak mine and then we <laughs> we will have an adult conversation right like you know just not taking so that has certainly been a, a growth point um in addition to that I think that it's matured in the sense of and I'm not even sure whether or not this is healthy but categorizing my expectations from what I get from him um mm-hmm. So it's certain things I may ask for in terms of, you know, perspective on maybe talking to somebody or something like that. But other things I just don't expect to, to get insight. Um, and I think that has helped me, again, I don't know if it's healthy, but it's helped me in our dynamics and in our interactions um, to, to reorient myself 
you know, how we relate, how we connect and, and, and communicate. What, uh, what role do you feel like fathers play in their children's um, development as far as like consciously, or like their outlook on the world? Yeah, so uh, I think that uh, there's some type of, uh, and I'm not speaking from a biological perspective, I'm talking pure pain <laughs> perspective, but um, my, I thought there's something innate about the expectation for a father to both like dictate and kind of maybe say lay out the land for a child, right? Mm -hmm. Like help me understand what I may engage, what I may interact with, train me in in a particular perspective or orientation or disposition on, on how to engage these things, right? So in terms of establishing values, belief systems, um, in terms of establishing self-identity and self-determination. Um, so whatever you're gonna go after, you determine what you're going after, but have something that you're going after, right? So Sir, Toy Sir Royce was like, what, is, what do you do for work? What's your purpose or whatever? Like, I think it's still an, a sense of purpose often coming from um, the father and then the, the mother nurtures that sense and builds that. But I believe the father often is the one who says, you are here for something to do like, so, you know, developing worth ethic and diligence. So I, I think there's also this aspect of discipline. Um, in many cases, discipline is limited to uh, physical punishment mm -hmm. or just punitive in general. But I think about discipline in terms of correction, uh, where if you are out of order, out of line, or you're doing something that will cause yourself harm or someone else harm, the father puts you back on track, um, yeah. brings you back to say, this will lead to those things. I need you to be here. This is the course that we're setting around here. This is these are the values and practices. You need to operate according to these things. Um, when you are out away from me, then you have freedom to do other things. But the course I'm laying out for you is according to these particular guidelines and bounds. Um, so that's how I think of the role of a father. Do you feel like your um, I guess like what has your dad uh, taught you along those lines, either directly or indirectly. Yeah. So one thing, and I, I didn't, I don't even necessarily want to. I remember when I was younger, I didn't want to remember this, but he just said it so often. Um, but the idea of persistence, uh, this concept, I should say, of persistence. But you know, if you're working at something, to stay for, you know, to maintain fortitude and to stay diligent. And pursuing whatever that thing is. Um, I think also he uh, instilled respect of human of humans and people. Um, I'm not, I don't mean to say humans in terms of like like dealing with aliens and then like that, but just like <laughs> I think when in the spaces that I'm in, in engineering, I really see often how people are treat others like things, as if yeah. they don't have feelings, as if they don't have experiences that they can understand as if they, right, you just tell someone something and they're supposed to respond like in a robotic manner. And so I think the way I saw my dad interact with people and communicate often um, helped me 
not necessarily know how to do this or how to do that, but just that's a person, that's a human being, like acknowledge them and to mm-hmm. like trust that if you interact with them and you show them respect, they may or may not do the same, but they can, they will be, they will appreciate that. Right. So so many times where like going to interviews and stuff like that, right. A lot of times people are like, Oh, you're supposed to do it this way. And that I'm just like, I'm going to just go and respect the human being and they respect, like we can talk, you yeah. know, or trying to make, so I think through his communication style um, and his frequency in communication, I mean, he, my dad and stepmom, they work uh, in downtown Detroit, they work an ice cream stand. And so on that corner, we have festivals, not as frequent as they used to be. Um, the festivals aren't in downtown Detroit, but when I was growing up, like they'd be there all day, you know, various festivals and then concerts. Like you talk with so many people. I mean, you mm-hmm. see so many different folks coming on, you know, across the street or whatever, uh, asking. And they, they start off asking for ice cream and then they end up talking about who knows what. <laughs> but um, when you see people ask people, you, you can engage the folks across differences in perspectives, um, but you value human connection, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you appreciate the way that us connecting through conversation energizes both of us. Um, so those are some things uh, I think. So we were talking uh, kind of before uh, about Juneteenth and kind of what that means. Yeah. Uh, we had a Juneteenth Father's uh, Day event in uh, Chicago. Okay. And uh, it was great. Like we had like a uh, folk, uh, like a folk uh, performance. Uh, we had games for the kids. We had, you know, things that related to Juneteenth, you know what I'm saying, to teach the children like what it really means. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my question to you, because it was Father's Day, so uh, what's been the best uh, Father's Day gift you ever uh, received from your children so far? Oh, uh, <laughs> I feel bad. Here's one of those uh, father failures. I should remember this though, huh? Uh, man, I don't know. I'm not even gonna try to act like and make something up. But well, they're four and three, right? I don't got nothing. Yeah, yeah. Four and two. They soon to be five and two. Yeah, four and two. But yeah, but, so it's mostly like you know, mama doing stuff. But oh man. So what about I'm mama here? Was one of the best ones she gave you? Well. I think it's also connected with them, but it was from her, but um, video, um, I think that, you know, she was, and I don't remember exact words, but I remember one time she basically just walked through the ways that she sees me uh, caring for each of the girls. And so I think that was deep to me because it's shown that she she sees my engagement. Um, I think a lot of times I'm like, man, I'm stumbling. Like, okay, I get that diaper and I feel like, you know, for a week, all I might have did was just change diapers and pull-ups. You know, I ain't, I ain't help cook, I ain't help do hair. Just did diapers. So I, you know, feel like, man, I'm not doing enough. But that particular video, to think, might have been two years ago. Um, it was when they were smaller. Really helped me feel good, invigorated me and just like, you, you know, she basically like, I see you care for our girls. I, I'm, I'm not seeing you as this kind of physically present, emotionally absent, or whatever type of dad. She's like, you know, I see what you're doing, and I appreciate it. 
cool. without saying like you need to do more or you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like it's cool, but I need you to step the game up, you know, nothing like that. So nah, that's dope, man. What um I guess my question is what has like your relationship with your wife taught you about you and what has your relationship with your daughters taught you about you? Yeah, that's deep. Um great questions. But my wife um, it definitely taught me that like I I'm not as patient, um, not as sensitive to these others as I thought. Um, what I mean by that is there's times where she won't tell me. I, forgot, I messed up by saying something a certain way or doing something she asked me not to do or not doing something she asked me to do. But it's through her graciousness that when it clicks for me, I see what, what, what mercy really looks like. I see what kindness really looks like through her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I become aware that I don't offer those that, that same mercy, that same kindness and patience. Uh, I, I don't serve in the same way. I mean, she, she'll do things out of her generosity, like presence is really big for her. Um, small things like make sure you do cards on birthdays or various holidays or just, um, just caring for people. And yeah. so it's not through her saying that I'm not doing those things, but it's through her. I see the level which she does it that shows me that, oh, I thought I was doing good, but like, this is, this is what it really looks like to do that at a high level, um, her humility um, and just faithfulness, you know what I mean? And, and caring, being supportive. So that has really showed me um, that there is tremendous room for improvement. And the other thing, one of the things she showed me is the 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 critical the amount of time I spend thinking critically about how to live with purpose and and like how to be true to my principles mm-hmm. um, and the principles I want to leave this family with and what I mean by that is there's times where she'll get annoyed because I'm reinforcing certain things or I'm asking certain questions again, being particular about certain things. Um, or she'll just say, like, I really appreciate, you know, she hear about some of her friends' relationships. She's like, I'm so thankful that you do, 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 or that you don't, da, 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 da. <laughs> uh, I'm so thankful, like, oh, I was annoyed when you kept asking me about this or you wanted to do this or you didn't want to, uh, you know, do X, Y, and Z. But now I see why that's important. You know, now I see that you are... Uh, allegiance if you will or consistency in trying to be a man of principle why that matters you know so mm-hmm. that's probably my relationship with my wife and my kids I reinforce that lack of patience issue I mean poof they through when they were you know young small like younger than two uh yeah it just took a lot of time for stuff <laughs> trying to go to sleep. Like, I mean, they really show you, like, you can be mad and try to get them to do something, but, like, kids going to do what they're going to do. 
Yeah. And in those early stages, it's not even a defiance. It's just them figuring what they are. They're just being. Like, it's just natural with it reacts. And so I realized the level of frustration that I would reach um, was nonsensical. It didn't make any sense. If I know that these kids are dependent on me and they're not explicitly doing certain things, I should be able to adapt, but I just didn't. So that showed me my lack of patience. Um, but also what they helped me see about me is my sensitivity and emotionality. Um, mm. So I'm I'm a crier. Like, you start talking about deep stuff. I mean, multiple times in this talk, I'm just like, man, here's <laughs> something my dad. I'm just trying to hold back. Like, I, 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 I had to bust out crying. Oh, man, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, very sensitive. You got to let it go. Um, That's okay. Yeah, yeah. So like, I wouldn't be able to talk. I'd just be... <laughs> I, you know, so we wouldn't have no interview because I was just, uh, hey, I'm just boo-hoo. So, but I see that reflected in them. Um, and like, I mean, any just the smallest thing can shift their whole mood um, in negative or positive way. They can, mm-hmm. the way I respond to them, they can be turned off mm-hmm. and their whole demeanor shifts and they want to walk away. They don't want to interact with me. Or if I follow like my wife does, if I if they're irritated, frustrated, and I give them a hug, just like that, they back at they they're back engaged, and they can be frustrated, irritated, annoyed, and then they get a hug, and they're good to go. And so I think um, I see myself reflecting them a lot, uh, but they've also they've also showed me um, about myself in terms of just like. Uh, they're they're very observant and they're eager to um like just soak in not like books and stuff like that asking questions i mean that's some of that is common for all children i want to act like they're like baby geniuses um but i think that they show me that some aspects of my interest and knowledge and knowing and figuring things out has been passed on through them and the need to um, stay engaged with their ongoing development. But I mean, they, they, they can like books and those type of things, but if you give them something else, they'll be on to something else. If you give them like, that's just how kids are. Um, but they'll say like, for, okay, I'm, I'm trying to think. Uh, a daughter that's four is going to be five. Like she one day came home because, you know, when they like pre-kindergarten, sometimes folks are like, I want my kid reading by age three. Some of them like, yeah. I want to read before they get into kindergarten, whatever the case may be. And so being in the field of education, I feel like there's all this pressure that my kids are supposed to be like top of the game and just genius. And I'm like, that wasn't me growing up. And I want them to learn for the, for the enjoyment of learning, not trying to meet up to other people's standards. Yeah. So we were struggling trying to figure out when until we started trying to work on reading and stuff like that. And so we tried it for a little bit, but my daughter wasn't really responsive. So we like, all right, we'll leave it alone. And then sometime later, I mean, I'm talking about months later, she came, she's like, I want to know how to read. I want to learn how to read. And we just like, oh, really? So we like, you know, we looking at each other like, hey, these are big eyes, we excited. And then we, you know, so I was like, all right, let me, you know, let me try. I got a little whiteboard, writing letters, I have a reading. Then we got these books. And uh, 
she was like not feeling it right mm. it was like I'm like you just said you want to learn how to read <laughs> and so what it showed me is like one she's still a child I mean they communicate a lot of things but it helped me see that I'm not thinking about her at times from a parental perspective I have to know that like she's gonna say some things that she means but she may not feel like doing the things that she just said she mm. means it. it just means come back later it means you know try back later today maybe try tomorrow but I think sometimes I get so excited that or I want to see something happen that I'm just like let's do this right now as opposed to like putting on the parent hat and saying like mm. as a four-year-old human being and been out here for years what she say and does often can appear inconsistent, but that's just really her growing and developing, right? And, and my two-year-old, you know, one minute she talking in these very sophisticated ways, mm -hmm. and the next minute she whining, when he picked up in hell. Like, I can't be like, why you ain't talking like you just what? Like, why don't you just ask me? Like, I can't do that. <laughs> that's not helpful. As a parent, I have to be the more mature one and say that there will be ebb and flows to how she, you know, presents herself and how she's um, figuring herself out. And so they, they have taught me, like, it's one thing to be a parent. It's another thing to think like a parent, another thing to interact with them from a parental perspective, um, to give them space, to give them, uh, to support their agency and autonomy. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is they told, they, they've taught me how hard it is to be a parent. Like you have to be mm -hmm. so aware of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, like you can't take anything for granted. I mean, you, you, you can anticipate failure. You have to grow comfortable with that or just not, I wanna say failure, maybe not accomplishing things you wanna see done, but you, you can't afford to like, to just not be aware not be conscious in the present because it, it, too much will set in too much that outside of those values and beliefs or your perspectives or what type of child you want to build too much they'll end up all over the place you just think things will be inevitable and so it takes a lot of activity and engagement uh, one thing i'm thinking about in particular my wife and i we're reading this book parenting for liberation um and it is the book talks about all these intentional decisions that we can make and how we parent and i'm just like whoa like this when I thought about having children, part of it I just assumed was going to be inevitable. Oh, you try this, you try that. Mm -hmm. And they figured out, and just like, no, really everything from the food they eat, from what they, how they dress, you know, what they wear, how you talk to them, to where you go, what you allow them to watch or not watch, like everything is, you know, is shaping them in some way. Um, and the more intentional you are to, to whatever values you have, the, the more likely you have to, you know, support the, the human being that you're trying to support. So is that like liberation as a community or like um, liberation from what aspect? Your liberation as a parent or something? Or, or so it child? was uh, particularly um, focused on like, wow, I guess the, the mother was black, but looking from a um, racial liberation standpoint, Right, so getting out of norms of, as I said, thinking about disciplines only punitive, physical uh, punishment, um, norms of also like in community. So thinking about black spaces, 
in a white society, there's not many black spaces. Like I live in Detroit, so unfortunately to be in a city where most of the people that I see and come across are black, but that's not common. But even amongst those black folks, um, again, dietary dynamics or spiritual values or practices or educational values Definitely. may not be the same. So liberation in the sense of not feeling as if you have to do everything, um, but connecting in community to establish the type of collective values and, and support mechanisms um, that, that you need and would like to have in your own wellness and in raising ch children. Um, it was some things in terms of, uh, I actually forget what other types, but it, it goes a number of chapters on different aspects of parenting that they you know suggest they get out of these like traditional kind of historical problematic norms that black people often um, engage in and people in general, but particularly you know, talking about the black community, the book is. Okay. So me and Dr. Uh, Dr. Young have uh, daughters and uh, we're at different stages. So I have a four-year-old uh, and he has a daughter in high school. So <laughs> um, we're gonna go through these different phases. Um, what type of advice would you give your daughter, you know, as she uh, grows up and matures and becomes like her own, you know, self, her own woman? Like, uh, what, what uh, advice would you think you would give her uh, on just life in general? It ain't got to be about dating or nothing like that, but like, uh, just some sage advice from a dad. <laughs> I don't know about stage level, but uh, <laughs> levels to <through> um, it. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, there's, there's so you know, different folks that we have our children around may say various things to our daughters and you know try to encourage them. Um, but one person, and I actually can't remember who it is, but it, you know it's just something I think to reinforce my daughters. They said, you know, use your voice, speak up, and you know, in the act, she was whining or crying or something like that. But they were. You know, saying use your voice, like go ahead, like communicate with you, you know, that you want to be heard. And so, if I you know think of one particular thing, I think in particular is to encourage my daughters to use their voice. Um, it doesn't always necessarily mean speaking, um, whether that's through writing, um, but in the sense of being heard, that like people know what you're thinking, people know what that that you're capable and interested in communicating your perspective, your thoughts, um, your experience, um, your ideas. Uh, that's one in particular is finding ways to communicate. Like I think uh, um, a lot of black girls, I look at, I study, before I was in engineering, I was as an assistant professor in, in education, urban STEM education. And I saw all this information and data about how black girls are disciplined, how black girls are silenced in the classroom. Um, and it's like, if we see girls excelling in certain ways, then we just take from what we see, whatever we want to think of them as. So if they're doing well academically, then we assume that everything is okay. Um, if they are dressing in a certain way that we find is socially unacceptable, then we assume that everything is not okay. Um, if they are speaking in a certain 
way, if they communicate in a certain way or, or their body language is a certain way, then we make assumption about those things then rather than interacting with them, affirming their dignity and allowing them to tell us what's going on with them, giving them space to communicate what's well and what's not well. Um, so that's one thing for sure is I was trying to help my girls communicate and find their voice, establish their voice and, and, and whatever form or, or medium that means uh, and ensuring that they're heard. And then part of, part of another, I say another person I think of when I talk about that is Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, like, you know, this woman who was beat, um, beat down, um, excluded, blackballed from her job, you know, fired and things like that. And she made it her life's mission to articulate her experiences and the experience of those in her community, you know, not only her racial community, but like in her local community. Like she used her voice in various ways. And, you know, in many ways, she's still not as appreciated as much as I think she should be. But, you know, that's someone who I think about, like, man, who if I think about what my daughter be, I want to be like Fannie Lou. Like, you know, they tried to beat her down. Not they tried, they did beat her down, right, to silence her. They they fired her and, 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 and um, excluded her economically to silence her. Um, and there are very other mechanisms too, but she, she like, this, 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 this thing, that's all I got is this piece right here. And y'all gonna hear me, you know, as long as I'm able to use it. So. I know we, um, I know we getting close to time. So I have, uh, one last question for you. Um, if you could ask, if you could think about like a question that you, you know, we've asked a lot of questions in the time that we've been together. <laughs> um, but if you could think about like a question that you always wanted an answer to, what what would it be? Yeah, so with all of us having girls, one question that's always in my mind is like, how do men approach raising girls? Right? I think that um, hmm. when, when I first found out I was having a girl, one of my homeboys, he was like, oh, man, you must have treated women terrible. Like, what? <laughs> it was the first time I heard it. He's like, yeah, man, you know, men had girls. That means that they weren't kind to of, girls throughout their life. And that's, you, know, I, you know, so that was interesting. But then the other reaction I get is, you got a gun? Get your guns ready. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> so it's like all these kind of, sometimes people are joking, sometimes people are serious with these ideas around, uh, or, you know, another one is, getting ready for puberty, right, for, for, for girls and getting ready for their period and how to mm. navigate. So, you know, I'm like, I always tell my wife, like, if I had a boy, I know what things to kind of anticipate, to anticipate more explicitly that he'll navigate. I mean, it won't be everything that I went through, but there's some particular milestones, right? But for a young lady, for a girl, I'm just like, I've heard some. I, I mean, I don't, you know, so I, that's always, in my mind, people who raise girls are raising as a man, like, yeah, how do you approach that? Tips, suggestions, yeah. Okay, cool. So I'll tell you in my uh, experience, <laughs> I uh, have a uh, a poor year old. She's a uh, she's a cancer. That's just to give you scope. So she, uh, I know other cancers, and uh, they are very similar in the way that they have moods, like mood swings. You know, one moment happy, next moment the world's ending. Ooh, you know, it's it's like that in the instant. 
So uh, <laughs> I broke it down to like a science, like um, the different moods she would be in would be a different character. So it would be, uh, it was a dog when she was sad, sad puppy. And she would walk around like a puppy, sad, barking, like a sad bark. And I'm like, oh, come here, sad puppy. And I was sure of love. Like every, in every character, I was sure of love. It wasn't, it wasn't any character. The common denominator was love. But uh, other characters would be uh, more feisty, more, uh, I'm mad. Like that mm. type of thing, I'm angry. So I would, I would literally cater to each mood. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't reprimand her. I wouldn't like say, you wrong for doing this. I would, all right, which character are you? Mm. And then she would tell me. Then I would say, okay, let's talk about it. You know what I'm saying? And then we would, we would literally like act it out, like role play. <laughs> like, and uh, and um, and we still do it to this day. Like, uh, like she's still, she's real feisty. She she speaks her mind. Like, she'll tell you, like, I'm not listening to you. Like, she'll say that. I'm like, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, dude, uh, you know what I'm saying? We're going to have to talk about what that means. Hmm. What does that mean? If you don't listen to me, this they, these, these are your options, A or B. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Uh, so, uh, I think for me, uh, to wrap it up, uh, my experience with my daughter is, uh, she's a daddy's girl, like daddy's girl. Like if it was daddy's girl in the dictionary, your daughter would probably be there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, my daughter would be right next to her. Like, yep, yeah, I'm here too. Like she's really like on my lap. Like she, she's really attached to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I appreciate that. Like uh, I really feel her love and, uh, I want to multiply that like that as much as I can. So, that's yeah, my that's, uh, man, I used to be like, I don't even believe it. I don't know if that girls is a real thing. That's how I used to think I had my first. And then when the second one came through, I was like, yeah, this is a yeah, thing. It's real. The second one, I would say, is a, like, it's a, it's a clear difference in how she will seek me out or when she sees me, the level of excitement yep. in the older. She reaching like, out to you like, hey, yeah, man. yeah. It's like it's, some of it you can account for. Okay, I did things differently. I was a little more engaged, but other of it just like, yeah, this joker. Like, there's a natural inclination there um, that you can't can't explain. Yeah, for for me, um, well, I, I have two daughters. Um, one is sixteen, and the other is um, is nine. Um, and I have a son that's in the middle. He's 14. So I guess for me, man, like I do have a gun. Uh, so just <laughs> so that, that that part is true. Uh, right, find like, out. Find out. What'd you say? <laughs> say find out, nigga. Find out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for me, like I tried to treat all of my children um, the same, but based on like their personalities, because all of them are different. But um, I guess I try to engage with them based on like their different personality traits, but still at the same time, maintaining like fairness and treating them all the same. So I don't know if this helps, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's, that's what I tried to do over the years, man. 
Thank you. Thank you. So your youngest is your daddy's uh, little girl. Dr. Young, who is yours? The oldest or the youngest? Or both of them? I don't know. I don't think like neither one of them are like uh I guess like in that mode, maybe maybe my my youngest daughter. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think she's necessarily like a daddy's little girl. Hmm. Um I think they both like me. They <laughs> they both uh, like You good then. You got that. You good. Hey, that's all that matters, but you good. Yeah. <laughs> that's hard enough. Yeah, let's see at 16. Ooh. Yeah, it, man, yeah, start man. with like, man. You gotta start with like. You know <laughs> but they, they both love me. I'm gonna say that. Well, all three of my kids love me. There you go. So. <laughs> they, uh, they like you too, though. That's important. That's a, oh, that's, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good way to say that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they, like, they like you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, my last thing, uh, and this has been uh, a great interview, man. I really appreciate you uh, doing this, James. Uh, I asked you a question before we, we booked the call. Uh, what does fatherhood mean to you? And uh, James, you said uh, you had a good answer. You said uh, embracing the privilege and responsibility of nurturing the brilliance of my children. So if you can uh, expound on that a little bit more. Yeah, man. So... You know, I think that on the first thing, typically folks think of parenting as responsibility. Right? You brought this little joker into the world, you know, and they ain't asked to be here. And so you have certain tasks and things to help them grow, make sure they're fed uh, intellectually, spiritually, physically, you know, nutrition, those type of things. But I also think it's a, a privilege in the sense that, like, it's, it's ways in which they give back to me, uh, like, so much joy and excitement, like, seeing their little laughs, you know, seeing their their resilience to have fun, um, like, you know, and, and just their, their unawareness of certain things. I mean, I think it's a great reminder of what's most important. Like, man, there's this a lot of craziness going on, but they out here just doing their own thing. And they're having a great time, and it remind it, it, it recenters me on the importance of the more important aspects of life. So I feel like it's a privilege to have these little humans that I'm investing into, but are also giving me feedback about myself. Like the question Dr. Young asked earlier about what have I learned about myself through them. Like a lot of people don't have that. You know, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to receive the joy and laughter and the affirmation from them. Um, as well as the challenges that they bring. So I, I see, I truly see it as a privilege and, response, and responsibility. Um, in the Bible, you know, there's a Christian Bible say, you know, children are a blessing from the Lord. And so my first two years, I was like, I might have to, like that, that scripture stuck out to me. I'm just like, Lord, I don't know, man. Like, I believe I believe your word, but I feel more burdened than blessing. And then, but when I, as I said, once I adapted some things from in myself, and better absorb the role of being a father and a parent, I can then see even better appreciate the blessing that they that they bring. Um, but the other part when I talk about that brilliance is just like I truly believe that God has invested something wonderful in every human being that He um, allows to grace His earth, and in particular, so often Black folks, as I talked about earlier, we in the, this op oppressive context, we're focusing on survival. 
we're focusing on counteracting the problematic structures that we have to navigate. But if you just focus on counteracting, you don't get to really get at the 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 natural beauty that you have. You don't really get to nourish that because you're responding to this ugliness. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it's my responsibility to help them to acknowledge what's working against them, but not center who they are and build it solely around that thing because you never truly get your real potential. And so you have to build up the resilience to say, look, I'm, there are barriers, there are hurdles, there are unfortunate circumstances I'm gonna have to come across, but my totality is not simply to respond to those things. I have something greater and better that was invested in me that I want to bring to fruition. And so it's my job to not constrain that and, and or not try to make that into what I want it to be within them, but rather to create a space and a context where that they can pursue that and, and see that realized through themselves. Oh, that's dope. That's dope. You know what, man? Uh I know, like, <laughs> we talk about, like, Hall of Fame interviews on here. And uh, I would like to nominate this interview with James uh, as a Hall of Famer. I appreciate I, that, man. I second the motion, man. I second that motion. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we the only two votes that count, man, me and Ed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in there. We're in there. <laughs> In the Raptors, putting you in the Raptors right now, man. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it, man. What's your jersey number, bro? Yeah, yeah. 2020, I'm 22. Deuce, deuce. Deuce, deuce in the Raptors, man. 22. I'm a junior. Make sure you put the junior in his face. Yeah, man. Nah, man, that's the thing, man. Yeah, we we definitely appreciate you, man, for your time and for your candor and uh, for your story. Most of all, like uh, you got a great story, man, and it's it's uh, gonna bear fruit. It's already done. It already bear fruit already. So mm-hmm. keep keep doing what you're doing, bro. You're doing a good job, man. Yeah. Thank you. All right, uh, Doctor Yannis, you have anything else before we close? No, nah, no other questions. Um, I just wanted yeah. to thank you. That, uh, thank you, James, for for joining us, man. This has been an awesome interview. You're welcome. You're welcome, and thank you all for this opportunity, man. It is really cool that um, folks aren't just focusing on their own, their own experience, but bringing others in to talk about the journey collectively. Thank you all for what y'all doing and bringing me into it. Yeah, don't hang up, James. We're going to have a little uh, post hey. uh, Yeah, we got a lot of times when people just boom, hang up right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I grabbed the mouth. I was like, I don't but uh, yeah, so for myself, for Sir Royce Brialis, for Dr. Raheem Young, and for James Holly Jr., uh, thanks again for listening to WTF Interviews, and stay tuned for a further announcement. Yes, yes, Sir Royce here, and I want to thank you again for listening to WTF Interviews. Leave a review as it helps more people like yourself receive the message. Also, consider donating to Welcome to Fatherhood. It's a nonprofit that myself and Dr. Raheem Young created to help dads showcase their superpowers to the masses. You can do that by going to wtfatherhood.org. Again, gratitude and be well. You already are.